Welcome to the Pink Tax Podcast, a no-nonsense podcast for millennial women, building wealth and smashing the patriarchy, one dollar at a time, with your hosts, Janine and Tara. interview with one of the most exciting economists in all of the Twitterverse. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. Okay. Who is it? Stephanie Kelton, and she is the author of The Deficit Myth. Cool. Love that book. Amazing. Yes. Um, So we've landed an interview with her for the podcast, and it's super exciting, but I wanted to talk about modern monetary theory before we have her on. Yeah, sure. Like we can we can do that. I think we did a little like thing on it last season, I want to say. We did. We did. Yeah. The last episode of season 3 was a little bit about modern monetary theory. So, let's take a maybe a rewind in terms of what we remember from modern monetary theory. So, if you were to explain it to, you know, an average Joe on the street that had never heard of modern monetary theory, what would you say? Well, I would like to hear Dr. Stephanie Kelton explain it, but my interpretation from what I've read in from her book is that if you have a country that prints its own money, that is only indebted to itself in its currency, collects tax in that currency, is not indebted in another currency. So like, for instance, Canada doesn't owe the European Union anything, like we don't have debt in Euro, then you basically, if you need money, you print it. So if you need to fund something, you just, you just print that money. You don't have to like go and ask China for money. You don't. That's my understanding of it. That's a really good Cole's note. So just to back up, because I think we're going to probably put her interview after this little spiel you and I have, but Stephanie Kelton is one of the leading modern monetary theory economists in the world. Um, she yeah. is a professor at Stony Brook University. Mm-hmm. And she was hired by Bernie Sanders to be, like, the chief economist for the U.S. Senate. So she's, like, kind of a big deal. Yeah. No big. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. Yeah. And she was named, like, one of the 50 uh, most influencing um, people in the policy debate in America by Politico. So, like, yeah. I'm kind of freaking out. Shit, we're lucky. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't, yeah. Yeah. Um, not feeling very smart right now, but that's okay. I have but lots like, of questions. But let's dig into, we have so many questions for her and, and we can't wait to jump into it, but like, let's, let's talk about what we know about modern monetary theory. You've given like a, a super high level overview, but you know, there was a couple examples from her book, which I like, 
I highly recommend either people read or I listened to Stephanie Kelton read it on Audible. And I thought that was a wonderful way of hearing her explanation of things. But there were a few things that stood out to me. And I think one of the biggest, you know, themes in her book is not treating the government like a household when it comes to personal finance, right? Like, we are all, we have to earn income, you know, we get a paycheck, and then we pay our expenses, you know, rent, utilities, all of those things. But the government is very, the federal government is very different if you're in a sovereign nation, one that prints its own money, right? We have the ability to spend before we earn, in a sense, I think yeah, would be a taxing. fair way of saying it, right? And it's so hard to explain in such a short number of words, but the federal government is not a household when it comes to personal finance, right? Yeah. It'd be like if we had a money printer in the basement, it's like, oh, shit, like, I need new school clothes for the kids. And it's like, oh, let me just go down to the money printer and then I will, instead of using my credit card, I will use this printed money and then when I get paid, I will then, like, pay myself back. Like, it's not even... Yeah, it. she explains it beautifully, but it does make um, debt, like, federal debt and deficits just not seem scary at all. And I think that's a huge thing is there's been so much negative publicity around federal debt, right? Like, I think she talks about it in the book where it's it's New York. I think it's close to Times Square, or if not, it's in Times Square for the, the debt counter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we have our own version here with the Canadian Taxpayer Federation. They always, like... I usually only hear about them. those conservative assholes. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, you only hear about them, you know, running up to a federal election and they run around and say, this is the debt and whatever, and our kids are going to be inheriting it. But I really enjoyed, like, yeah, I really enjoyed her section on the deficits that matter. Like, if we don't spend this money that we have full access to, if, if we don't spend it now, like, what are we actually, like, giving our kids? I would really like to flip the script with those folks who are like, well, I'm, you know, passing this debt along to my children. And it's like, and you're also ending child but it's poverty not, in this but country. But it's not like it's like you're passing the debt of your estate onto them. Like, it's very different. And I think, again, no. that's such a, you have to just think of it in a different way. Yeah, and, and well, and what are you getting for it too, right? Like, if you're going to be able to end child poverty in one fell swoop, like, who cares then? Who cares? You just save children's lives. Like, it would be really sick, actually, if you used, um, you know, the the ability of modern monetary theory, which I think we do because there are certain things that we spend money on and just don't give a shit and don't talk about, you know, where are we going to get the money for oil companies? Who are we going to tax? But there's a lot of shit that we pay for with federal dollars. And then I do wonder what are our children inheriting with that spending? This only seems to happen when it comes to actually improving the quality of life for most, if not all people, which is very sick. It is. And when I like truly think about what kind of things we can spend on and what kind of things our children are inheriting, it just, 
it breaks my heart that, you know, in the U.S., it's basically like spend on defense without, you know, caring about how much. No one ever is like, how are we going to afford the tanks? And here in in Canada, especially in Alberta, it's, no one ever asks, how are we going to pay for the tax breaks for the oil companies? Mm-hmm. Or the direct subsidies, too. There's a lot of things that we subsidize here that don't get talked about. Um, but I think I think our interview with her is going to be stellar. What was, like, I know you had mentioned to me earlier, so I'm kind of just setting you up for this, but what was, like, one of the, like, um, quotes or something that you really loved of hers, like, in the book? Okay, like, the biggest thing, I think, is, like, tricking your kids. Um, and I'm going to go deeper into that. I think um, you know where I'm going with this, but my favorite example she gave in the book about modern monetary theory was this, I think it was one of the gentlemen who came up with modern monetary theory or was a leading economist in the Times um, about it. And he like was trying to get his kids to do chores. And he said, okay, you need to do X number of chores. I'll give you X number of dollars or whatever he was using. I think it was business business cards. cards. It was business cards. I'll give you 10 business cards if you clean the floors, whatever. And they had like an unlimited earning potential for those business cards. And they didn't do anything. And so he kind of like turned his economist brain on and was like, okay, I don't care how many chores you do. Like each chore had a different value in terms of dollars or business cards, one, two, three, four, five, whatever. And he said, at the end of the month, you have to give me 30 business cards back. Mm -hmm. And they just like did all of the chores to earn the business cards. So he basically created a tax system. Mm-hmm. with his yeah. children and I'm like that's fucking brilliant but it just yeah. it not only is that a brilliant way to get your children to do chores but when you flip it on its head like that and you think about our monetary system and you think about our tax system that's exactly what it is yeah and so I've been reading this book um, by a different economist called uh, Less is More and um, that person brings it up in terms of um, you know, global finance as well, and how um, like different societies uh, across the world have been colonized by by different uh, empires, and like you know, you impose taxes first, right? And it made me think about like global debt as well, like how we have all of these um, so called you know third world or developing countries that are indebted to mostly the US or indebted to other nations in US dollars so we're effectively making other countries other sovereign nations colonies through a global financial system so that was that was interesting to me but this is not what i thought you were going to talk about i thought you were going to talk about the minimum wage thing oh that was another good one I feel like the children thing sticks out to me because I'm like, I have a child now. So I think Mm -hmm. about that. I'm like, how do I get him to do chores? But minimum wage was another one. Um, So I'll ask you this. There's so many. There's so many good points in her book. I know. But Janine, if we do not have 100% employment, what is 
the actual minimum wage in that country. Zero dollars. Zero dollars. I really liked that one because it doesn't matter. You know, we've had $15 minimum wage for a little bit in Alberta. And, you know, I think it's something that definitely should be pushed for. Um, but yeah, okay, but let, if let's somebody can that. fire you, you have, you are beholden. Like, yes, you might have to take illegal employment, but if you, if your choice is zero or $5 an hour and you can't feed yourself, you will take $5 an hour. So she's completely right. It is effectively $0. So one of the most, the, one of the most, I'm like, Literally everything I say about her book is one of the most interesting things. But another really super interesting thing is this notion of, you know, minimum wage being $0 an hour and we have to have, what does she call it? Um, a, a jobs guarantee? Jobs guarantee. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, explain that, that to our, explain that to our listeners. So a jobs guarantee would be that if there are not enough jobs created in the private sector, the public sector guarantees you a job. So instead of just, um, you know, applying through uh, government uh, services, whatever they're called now, ESDC or something like that, but rather than applying just for EI, you could just walk up to a government building and say, I need a job. Give me something to do. And then they pay you the, you know, federally guaranteed minimum wage and you get a job. And you get to do something. And I really, yeah, I really love that too because it incentivizes um, private employers to actually hire people and not just hire one person to do three people's work and actually hire those three people because it creates competition, right? Which is not how she explains it. But the jobs guarantee is the federal government would step in and guarantee everyone who wants a job gets a job. So there's a couple things there to elaborate on. One is... If you want a job, you can get a job at the federal minimum wage for as long as you possibly want until someone from the private sector hires you. And the Mm -hmm. piece there that's important is when you are unemployed, you are less likely to be hired Mm -hmm. because nobody wants to hire someone who isn't working currently it's there is this increase or this inflation in probably wages for people that are just they're they're recycling right like they're hiring people Mm -hmm. that have been working so with this federal jobs guarantee the private sector could go to this federal minimum wage pool of people that you described and hire them back into the workforce when they have Mm -hmm the capacity to do so because they want to hire people that are employed. So we punish people in our society that are unemployed. So they've already lost their job and then we're going to punish them again. Yeah. It, it creates poverty and it creates a sense. I think it creates a sense of scarcity around jobs when we know that there's a lot of work. Like we can't possibly have this many people working overtime, working three jobs, working, you know, 60, 70, 80 hour weeks, and then have somebody who can't find a job. I think that's absolutely reprehensible, actually, the more I think about it. I think, you know, without a federal jobs guarantee, maybe overtime should be illegal. Like, because honest to God, if you want to make somebody work 
12 hour days, 16 hour days, uh, you know, 15 on and two off, you're actually stealing someone else's job, like that doesn't have one and wants one. Um, the other thing that it made me think of, if you're hiring people through a jobs guarantee at a federally guaranteed minimum wage, you're creating a support line for wages as well. So we would start to see like, you know, instead of this conversation of like, oh, that's just a starter job in McDonald's and whatever. And, you know, the person that cleans our hospitals is not as valuable as the person that, you know, is this, this, that, or the other, when really all that it is, is like this threat of unemployment that really drives those wages, I think, right? So it creates a support line. I like it. We have seen just how important those people are in this pandemic, right? Like our hospitals will not run. We wouldn't mm-hmm. have stocked grocery shelves. Like it's, we have yeah. to pay those people a proper wage. And I don't think they should be let go or fired or whatever for whatever reasons those organizations are letting them go without the ability to, you know, walk up to a government building and be like, mm-hmm. yo, I need a job. And the government's like, yes. But the other point yeah. I was going to make is she mentions in the book that you would hire these people to support a care economy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, love that. I think, um, as you mentioned, like one of the things that this pandemic really showed us is the need for a care economy. Okay, so Tara, tell us what a care economy is. Well, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to explain this like correctly, but to me, it, it seemed like it was more needs based. So instead of having people dying in long-term care homes, you have many, many, many workers providing care to those people instead of having many, many, many people doing spreadsheets for oil companies. (laughs) I mean, I'm just shitting on oil companies today, which I shouldn't do, but, um, do it. But yeah, but it, it seemed to be what brings true value to humans. Like what is required to maintain a human life and then all our human lives. So I don't know if that's a clear explanation. But that can, so I worked, I worked at a, like an, a retirement home when I was 17 and I was like a server there. So I would like serve them food. Obviously like they couldn't have alcohol, whatever, but like they had scheduled like outings to places and there were people hired to either lead those activities or, you know, bust them to those outings. Like if they were going to go to the mall one day or, mm-hmm. um, like, I mean, now it's like bringing the COVID vaccines, but you know, were they going to go bowling one day or whatever? Like those things are so important for human life mm-hmm. as well. And that's just on like the elderly side of things. That's not even on like the, like care of like children and adults mm-hmm. and sick people and people with disabilities. Like there's so much yeah. we can do to support yeah, so many types of people. The care economy does include um, child care and early Absolutely. childhood education, all those kind of things. And to your point, like I used to volunteer at those homes and provide entertainment and that kind of stuff. What um, did you do to provide entertainment, Tara? I sang. Don't anyone look it up. Um. Anyway, like, please sing for us, Tara. No. <laughs> um, but but yeah, like a lot of these caregiving services are being supported with volunteer or 
however you want to put it, zero wage labor. And what if we paid so them? Yeah. Well, and and that could be that could be a stay-at-home mom. It could be a part-time worker who is forced into part-time wage work because they have to do unpaid labor at home caring for someone. It could be homeschooling because you don't have access to a or literally. School. Like I have a girlfriend who, like I won't mention names, but is staying at home longer than she probably would have because she gave birth to a premature baby. And so that there's, like, an adjusted age. Like, this baby is a year, but adjusted age is 10 months. Yeah. So, and so if we had, like, if we had more child care workers, if we had, you know, um, more early childhood educators, if we had more support workers to support somebody with a premature baby or, you know, whatever. somebody with disabilities, like, what, whatever it is. But I just don't think that we should just say, oh, yeah, fuck you. You can't do a spreadsheet right now. Like... Go fuck yourself. First like, of all. And that's, I think ignoring the care economy is is what that does. So the jobs guarantee, yeah, it would be in the care economy, and I think that would be pretty sweet. So first of all, spreadsheets are the worst. They are. Well, Coming from I like a person, <laughs> I do too, but they're the worst. Okay, so to not spend too much time talking about this before we bring Stephanie on, why do you think she's coming on our podcast? Well, I... I think it was all you, obviously, because you're just like, so she's coming on our <laughs> podcast. But honest to God, I don't know why people want to listen oh, to me. Oh, it's because you're so amazing, that's, girl. That's you right there. So I'm going to say it's all you. No, I can see myself turning red. I know I'm not. I swear a lot. We're so <laughs> excited, though. I cannot wait to have her on. Yeah, no, this she's is awesome. Fucking amazing. We're very lucky, very lucky, and she is wicked smart. Wicked and cool. she sent us a copy of and, her book, uh, which is so cool. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, it's a great read. And putting notes in the margin and everything has been super fun. Um, so yeah, yeah. Do you have anything else you want to talk about cool. before we have her on? Ooh, I don't think so. I think it's more listen to her and less of me and the world would probably be a better place. I think this is like a good way to solve many of the world's ills. It's going to be rad for sure. Yeah. Yeah, we'll try not to fangirl too hard in our interview. I can't promise yeah. that either of us aren't going to be weird. So tune in. It's going to be attached pretty shortly here in this episode so here we go here we go so thank you so much for joining us stephanie we are so excited to chat with you both tara and i are huge fans we've uh, read your book i've listened to it on audiobook and we are just uh excited that you're here with us today i'm wondering if you could start by uh describing mmt in you know a short paragraph or a short sentence or in a nutshell just to give everyone a, a quick understanding of what exactly it is Yes, I mean, I will try. So first, it's nice to be with both of you. Thank you um, for the invitation to come in and spend a little bit of time with you. So MMT, wow, in a in a sentence or a paragraph, what you're effectively asking me to do is take a quarter of a century of uh, scholarship written by a number of economists and distill it into a soundbite, but I will try. So 
uh, MMT, you know, you, you hear about economists, right? And you know, the economists come in sort of different, um, different flavors, if you like. There are Keynesian economists and Austrians and Marxists and on and on and on. So there are schools of thought. So MMT is a school of thought within economics and specifically within macroeconomics. And within this school of thought, what we try to do is to explain how money works in the simplest possible terms, how a sovereign currency works, drill down, get people to understand what makes the federal government different from a household, how it can operate its budget in ways that are nothing like playing by the rules that you and I have to play by, that it has policy space to carry out an economic agenda that supports a full employment economy, that it can't run out of money, that it can't go broke, that it doesn't face uh, financial constraints like the rest of us do, that what it faces is an inflation constraint. I think you did a great job there of um, distilling it down, I think. There are so many interesting things that I know I learned when I was reading your book, but the one that you know stood out most to me was that we can't treat the federal government like a household, which is, you know, you always hear that in the news, uh, you know, whether you're Canadian or American or really, I guess, any country around the world, there's this push to make it so that individuals and governments are, are treated the same from a financial perspective. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. And that's where I start the book. The first chapter of the book says, uh, is called Don't Think of a Household. And that is, from my perspective, I think, you know, the most pernicious myth that's out there because it's one that sounds so right that it's easily believed when we hear politicians talk to us using language that, um, we're all familiar with because we're familiar with our own personal finances. We know we can't spend more than we take in year after year. We can't take on you know debt year after year after year and expect that everything's gonna work out. We know it's possible to go bankrupt. We've seen companies go under, maybe we've even known someone who's filed for bankruptcy. So we know people can get into trouble with debt and overspending. And so when a politician says, that the federal government is just recklessly, you know, charging up the credit card, the nation's credit card, piling on debt, and that this is all going to lead to disaster. Uh, it sounds right to us because we immediately make reference to our own personal finances and nobody ever stops and bothers to tell us why the federal government is different from a household. Yeah, I think that was great. I really enjoyed that you um, started your book that way. There were so many revelations for me when I was reading this. I think specifically in um, your section on deficits that do matter. And I noticed there was a common thread of talking about the care economy. And I was wondering if you could go into detail a little bit of what it, what a care economy is and how that affects women and maybe how it ties back to MMT. Well, I mean, we all need care, right? I mean, in, in, in one fashion, form, uh, or way, we all have to be cared for. We need our, you know, we have to have well checks. We need physicals. We need dental care. 
Um, we may require childcare or have required childcare when we were young. We may require it of our children. We need care as we age. So there are so many ways in which, you know, we, we have an economy that in some ways services those needs, right? You have doctors and dentists and nurses and childcare professionals and mental health care professionals and so on. But uh, the way that we generally provision many of those care activities is through the private market. So we turn these into profit-oriented uh, you know, endeavors and not everybody can afford to access childcare at an affordable cost or you know, elder care. And so what it often ends up happening is that you know, most of the caregiving is those activities are performed mostly by women. Right, and they tend to be low-paid jobs. So you've got uh, women doing most of the caregiving work, receiving um, you know fairly low pay for those jobs. And one of the things that I talk about in the book is you know that at the same time we don't have enough to go around, right? Child care, elder care, and the rest. We also have millions and millions of people who are unemployed who want to work, who want a way to contribute. And it seems to me fairly straightforward to match the willingness of millions of people to work, right? Unemployed people who want to work but can't find jobs with all of the unmet needs in society, many of them in the caregiving space. So a care economy is one that would be oriented around creating jobs that allow people to care for their communities, to care for the planet, and to care for other people. I really love that. Thank you. I know just hearing you say that, you've basically said, you know, we have the workers, we have the desire to take care of each other. It's just for some reason we're not loosening the purse strings of the central bank that can actually print the currency. Am, am I getting that right? Well, mostly, I mean, more or less, I would say it a little bit differently. I would say when we talk about loosening the purse strings, right, who, who gets to, to draw the purse strings closed and open the purse strings up? It's not really the central bank per se, it's uh, our elected representatives. In the case of the US, it's Congress. So if Congress were to vote for a big ambitious package, you know, something like what the Biden administration has proposed. And there is quite a lot in there that is oriented around caregiving. You know, he's got basically two packages that he was looking to push through Congress. One of them was called the American Jobs Plan. That was largely about uh, physical infrastructure, not entirely, but roads and bridges and broadband and all that kind of stuff. And then there was another package, almost $2 trillion that was called the American Families Plan. And that's where you have a lot of investment that could take place in a caring, in a caregiving economy, the elder care and child care and education and that sort of stuff. So uh, what, what would need to happen is that Congress would need to pass legislation committing the resources, the financial resources, say, we're gonna spend this much money to achieve you know, these goals, to provide affordable healthcare, uh, childcare, elder care, and the like. 
and the Federal Reserve, the central bank, will carry out the payments on behalf of the US Treasury, anything that Congress has authorized. So the Fed is there, the central bank is there to, if you like, kick the money out the door, but the Fed can't kick the money out the door unless it has been instructed to do so by Congress. Very cool. I think something like that would uh, would be great for Canada to mirror as well, even in terms of infrastructure, because there are so many folks that live up north that don't have access to internet or, uh, you know, even have a way to get food reliably, unfortunately. One thing I was hoping you could touch on this this jobs portion of that and a jobs guarantee, how would that impact women? Maybe how does it relate back to uh, a care economy or even unpaid labor that we know most ladies already do? Yeah. So, okay, let's chip away because there's a lot to unpack in that question. If I miss anything, you remind me uh, and, I'll, and I'll go back and cover it. So first, what is this idea of a job guarantee? It's simple. It is kind of what it sounds like. It is guaranteed employment for anyone in the economy who wants a job but can't find work anywhere else in the economy. Say, I want to work, but no one wants to hire me. The private sector is not interested in me right now. I can't find a job. The federal government can provide the, um, the income, right? Can pay the wages and allow that person to do useful work in the community. And in the book and in other MMT scholarship over many years, we have said that these jobs should all be oriented around what we call building a care economy. So as I said earlier, you know, the jobs um, should place people in productive employment where the, the contribution they're making is to uh, caring for their communities, caring for the planet and caring for people. Now, how does it benefit women? Well, the truth is it benefits everyone. Every worker benefits from this kind of a safeguard because this is something that's in place and available to any worker. Now, you could be an employed worker making you know, a great salary and something happens in your industry, something happens with your employer, you lose your job. Uh, you also have the right if you choose to work in this program to take a job in this program you have a, a wage, you have benefits, and you have some economic security, some income security, until you transition back maybe into the private sector at some point. So it benefits everyone, but there are probably unique benefits for women. Why? Because women are more likely than um, males to, to exit the labor force and for longer periods of time to do the kind of care work we've been talking about to stay home with children when they're young, to provide um, care for you know, an ailing spouse or elderly parents, in-laws, a lot of that falls on women and they take time out of the workforce and there's loss of income. And then you know, because they're out of the labor force for a longer period of time, it impacts them on the other end of life, which is in retirement, um, they have paid less into programs like social security. And so they receive lower lifetime benefits than their male counterparts as a result of that as well. So a program like this would allow them to remain employed, protect income, um, not have the loss of years of service in terms of you know retirement income on the other side and so forth. So 
a myriad of benefits. And by the way, you know, you can design the job guarantee program so that you are compensating individuals, including mostly women who um, do most of the caregiving. If you're caring for an elderly parent or an ailing spouse, there's no reason that you could not be compensated for that labor uh, through a job guarantee program like I describe in the book. I think that's so interesting and I guess relevant also from what we've seen, obviously through the pandemic, we've saw, we've seen a lot of people lose their jobs, but you know, here where we, where Tara and I live in, in the province uh, of Alberta, we've also had a lot of cyclical, um, I guess, boom and bust cycles because we're heavily based on oil and gas, um, which is a whole other discussion. But I think there are a lot of workers that could have benefited from that, um, even as recently as 2014 when oil tanked. And I know um, lots of organizations laid off a ton of people here. Oh yeah, no, no question. That that's exactly right. That the program um, has broad, you know, offers broad benefits to uh, you know large segment of the population. It isn't even just for the currently unemployed, right? You're putting in place a new uh, permanent. Um, we call it in economics to use the jargon automatic stabilizer. Right. And, and the point of calling it a stabilizer is that it does just that. It stabilizes the broader economy. So when the wheels are coming off the economy in a downturn, you, know, you say boom bust, right? When the economy goes into the bust cycle of the business cycle and millions of people are losing jobs, instead of those people becoming unemployed and watching their incomes you know, drop to zero, or maybe you get some unemployment uh, support for a period of time, then it expires, and then your income falls to zero. Instead of that, you have a program where you can immediately transition back into paid employment. And you're much more employable if you remain employed through the business cycle, because employers don't like to hire people who don't already have jobs. They don't like to hire the unemployed, and they sure don't like to hire long-term unemployed. So this program truncates the business cycle. It keeps the downturn from extending as long as it otherwise would. So it shortens the downturn, brings about the economic recovery more quickly and stabilizes overall the level of output and employment in the economy. Well, and probably reduces a lot of stress for people as well, because I know I've known a lot of people that have been unemployed again through the boom bust cycles here in Alberta. And it's almost like they feel like they're counting the months on their hand so that they aren't um, going to be unemployed for so long. Um, for exactly that reason that you mentioned, they feel like the longer they are unemployed, the less likely it is that an employer is going to want to hire them. Yeah. So you start adding up the costs of unemployment and I think you will quickly find that they absolutely dwarf the costs of just directly employing everyone who doesn't have a job but wants one, right? You're, you're tapping into a part of that, right? When people are unemployed and they get bored and they get uh, discouraged, we even call them discouraged workers at some point, they drop out of the labor force. They feel like I have no, what am I worth? No one wants me, you get depressed start to suffer um, you know, from depression, mental illness, spousal abuse, alcohol abuse, crime, um, poor health outcomes. I mean, you just go down the list 
of you know, economic and social costs associated with unemployment, and you will rack up an enormous price tag. And that is the cost that we all bear already, um, you know, just for tolerating the current system, which is to trap millions of people who want jobs in unemployment. We often do it, uh, as strange as it might sound to some of your listeners, we do it deliberately. We do it because we think that if we allow too many people to find jobs, we'll create inflationary problems in the economy. So literally central banks are out there trying to figure out how much employment is safe. How many more people is it safe to allow to successfully um, find a job before we have to try to slow things down and hold a certain number of people hostage in unemployment because we're afraid that if unemployment rates get too low, inflation begins to pick up. And so we have this very weird um, policy regime, which actually effectively has central banks trying to figure out the right amount of unemployment to keep in the system. Yeah, when you think about it that way, that is such a weird concept being trying to trap people in unemployment. But it it is like, it's true. It's just definitely a different way of flipping that on its head. Yeah, well, economists call it the natural rate, because it sounds so much more casual and harmless, right? You just say, well, we're just trying to find the natural rate of unemployment. Uh, My colleague, Pavlina Chernova, who's written a book uh, called The Case for a Job Guarantee, she says, you know, this is crazy. We don't, we don't talk about the natural rate of homelessness or the natural rate of child poverty, but somehow, you know, the economics profession has decided that it's, it's perfectly comfortable with the concept of a natural rate of unemployment. That is wild. So going a little bit broader, how do we move from, you know, national MMTs in each of our countries and coordinate more of an equitable international economic system? Oh, huge question in the last five minutes. (laughs) That's easy, right? Uh, Exactly. That's extremely hard. That's extremely hard. I mean, you know, it's, it's difficult enough to get good economic policy in any given country. I mean, you know, if, if you're, paying attention at all to what's happening down here, you've probably noticed that you know, Congress has spent months already um, arguing, excuse me, arguing about this infrastructure spending proposal, and we're just not making headway. And we're talking about some really basic things like, you know, investing in our nation's crumbling infrastructure, but we can't get there. So if, if it's this hard for a rich country like the US to just kind of take care of things on the home front, just core infrastructure, we have not been able to do that. It's been decades that Democrats and Republicans have been talking about infrastructure, but not really passing legislation and committing the dollars to go ahead and modernize and upgrade America's crumbling infrastructure. So. Uh, if we can't get there on the domestic front in a country like this, I struggle to see where we go internationally. Obviously, you know, we have a president now who 
has just been meeting with other world leaders. They had the G7 uh, meetings and there are ongoing uh, talks with world leaders. President Biden is encouraging other um, you know, presidents and prime ministers to join the US in what he hopes will be this you know, large scale public investment, something like a build back better agenda where we all agree to make the kinds of investments that are going to strengthen the economic performance of you know, our various nations. And so he's made a plea, but um, you know, whether you can get the prime minister in the UK and in Germany and the president in France and the rest of them to come along, uh, you know, this is all obviously at the end of the day, this is politics. And you've got a lot of different political parties across Europe and, and we just don't share the same views and values and sense of priorities. So it's, it, it's not easy, um, but the only way to, to get there, I suppose, is to try. And at least now we have a president who does prioritize these kinds of investments and is urging other world leaders to, to do the same. Are there any countries that would be like as close to MMT as possible? I know obviously you can't be exactly one type of economics all of the time in a country, and that's probably a poor way of wording it, but have you seen any examples? Well, okay, so the first thing is to remember that when I started, we started this conversation, I said MMT is a school of thought. It's a macro approach. It's a framework. So it's not a prepackaged set of policies, right? You don't hand someone uh, a binder and say, do these things. This is MMT. MMT is an analytic framework. So it says to any given country, hey, let's take a look at your monetary system. Let's see if you have what it takes to allow you to um, use fiscal policy, that is spending and tax policy, to achieve better economic outcomes. Let's see if you have the capacity to do better than you're currently doing. What would it take? Well, one thing that's important in MMT is it takes control of a sovereign currency. So the US has a sovereign currency. The US dollar comes from the US government. It can't come from anywhere else, not legally anyway. The Canadian government has the Canadian dollar. So the Canadian dollar can't come from the US and it can't come from China. It can only come from the Canadian government. So you have a sovereign currency. Your government doesn't promise to convert the Canadian dollar into gold or into another country's currency. It's what we call a floating that means it's a floating exchange rate, not a fixed exchange rate. It's a fiat currency. Japan has one, Australia has one, the UK has one, and many other countries do as well. So if you have the monetary system that allows you the flexibility to spend without worrying about running out of money, right? Uh, interest rates running out of control or something like that, then uh, you might be able to do much more in terms of economic policy to achieve good economic outcomes. MMT doesn't tell you exactly what to do with that fiscal space. It just helps you to see what's possible, right? So it, when you say, are there countries that 
look like MMT might apply? The answer is yes, lots of them. Um, but MMT is much harder. The, the framework, in other words, shows you that there's less space available for a, a country like Italy because Italy gave up the lira and decided to start using this new currency called the euro. They don't issue euro. So in order to spend more, the Italian government has to be able to get euro either through increases in tax revenue or by borrowing euro from someone who has it, right? They have to go to capital markets. They have to sell government bonds. They need investors who are willing to take that risk to lend euro to a country that doesn't issue the euro. So they may end up paying much higher interest rates as a result. So they have less fiscal space available. So does a country like Ecuador. Ecuador doesn't have a local currency. Ecuador uses the US dollar. They adopted it outright. So to spend more, the Ecuadorian government needs to get the US dollar. So it, it reduces the scope, right, for what they can afford to do in terms of economic policy, whereas the US government or the Canadian government, well, there's much more scope for investment because your government and my government can never run out of its own currency, not financially constrained. What matters is inflation. That's amazing. I know we're running up on time. Did you want to discuss one more thing? Or I think that's a just thinking about the possibilities, I think is a great spot to to leave our listeners with something to think about. Well, if you have one more, I'm enjoying uh, our time together. If you have one more question you'd like to work in, I'll try to give you a quick answer. Sure. Just you spoke of inflation. I, I was wondering if anyone has concerns about inflation. What would you say to them, an, an everyday person with concerns about inflation? Well, so I would first I would say that MMT more than any of the other schools of thought that I am aware of that I've mentioned, MMT centers inflation as the relevant risk, as the relevant constraint. So I would say we're almost in a sense hypersensitive to inflation risk. That's what matters. That's where the focus should be. And there is a lot of hand wringing today. Uh, you know, this got started two or three months ago, something like that, with a couple of very high profile economists who raised concerns about the size of the Biden COVID rescue package. And they said it's too big. It's way too big. And it risks what they said was overheating the economy and setting off this really nasty inflationary kind of dynamic where prices just start going up and up and up and everything's getting more expensive. And you said, you know, what do you say to just an average person who's worried about inflation? Well, if inflation was a real risk, that is a thing to worry about, right? Because we don't want inflation that runs um, excessively hot. We are but today, I will say, we've never been here before, right? We're coming out of a global pandemic. We are reopening our economies after closing or nearly closing, you know, huge industries for a long period of time. And we're going to experience some sort of growing pains as we grow our way out of the pandemic and back to a more normal uh, functioning economy. And as that happens, 
there are going to be things that are more expensive in the short term. You know, it might be more expensive to book a hotel room or uh, a flight on an airline or, um, you know, to uh, buy an automobile. We've had problems with semiconductors and chip production has created bottlenecks in the production of new automobiles. And that's led to people trying to buy more used cars. And that has caused the price of used cars to go crazy. And that feeds into broader inflationary measures. And so people are seeing inflation or what looks like, you know, inflation in their own personal lives. And that can be distressing. You know, you pay more at the pump when you fill up your car, that sort of thing. But what we should remember is that, you know, this these are month to month kind of idiosyncratic things that in most cases we're working our way through rather than, you know, new entrenched uh, features of the economy that are going to be with us for many months and years to come. So uh, inflation is definitely the thing that policymakers uh, have to think about when they're when they're considering spending trillions and trillions of dollars more into the economy. It's the right question is, can the economy safely absorb all of this new spending I want to do? Or does my spending risk creating too much inflationary pressure, right? And, uh, and I think that where we are today is that we desperately need the investments. We need trillions of dollars of additional spending. And guess what? That additional spending is actually going to help reduce some pressures in the economy, some inflationary pressures, because one of the things Biden wants to do, for example, is to invest heavily in semiconductors. So that if the problem is we don't have enough computer chips and that's driving some prices higher, let's make more chips. If the problem is that it's very hard for employers to find workers because schools were closed and a lot of people stepped out of the labor force, mostly women to do caregiving uh, and people are worried they can't find affordable childcare to go back to work then the Biden uh, proposal is to spend more on affordable childcare. So that relieves the pressure. It allows women to find families to find affordable childcare so that somebody can return to work so that if there are labor shortages, now you have more workers. So ironically, you could say to avoid uh, inflation in the future, we need to spend a lot more today. I love that. That's perfect. Well, thank you so, so much for joining us. We loved your book. I've read it twice now. Oh. I'm going to read it a third time. Um, it's just amazing what you're doing. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you both. It was a real pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me.
We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Let us know what you think on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Pink Tax Podcast is recorded in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. Our music is provided by Margot. You can find her work at noisebymargot.com. Sound editing by Peter Dobson. If you'd like to support the Pink Tax Podcast, you can make a donation at liberapay.com slash pinktaxpodcast and submit a five-star review on Apple Podcasts.